This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, it's Robbie here. What have we got coming up on today's episode of the podcast? Living on a Prior returns for another edition, and it's an album that's nearly 50 years old under the microscope. David Bowie's Hunky Dory, an album that ultimately would launch David Bowie's career as a pop superstar. In sports, Chris has been in conversation with the legendary Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola, and I've been chatting with former world number one and four-time major winner Rory McIlroy as we build up to the DP World Tour Championship, which gets underway on Thursday. The Off Script Podcast. Living on a prior. Paying homage to the greatest albums of all time. 50 years ago, Rog, almost to the month. Almost to the month, yeah. December 1971, Hunky Dory was released. It became David Bowie's fourth studio album. Uh, It's one you mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the time capsule because it's just synonymous with David Bowie now. But it nearly didn't make it. It nearly didn't happen. It didn't chart on its initial release, which I didn't realise that. It's an album where David Bowie pushed himself in a different direction um, and an album that we possibly wouldn't have got if David Bowie hadn't been doing a promotional tour for three weeks in America. We'll get to that. Um, So when he began writing these songs, he'd had three failures, really, and he had six years of trying to make it. His albums just hadn't cut through and he he just didn't really know what he was. Was he a singer, a singer-songwriter, an artist? He tried acting a little bit as well. Um, And those first three albums... according to Rolling Stones, had tanked, and that's something I didn't realise. He didn't have a firm record deal. They were thinking about dropping him. He was in a bit of trouble with a previous publishing, as in music publishing deal, and it wasn't going particularly well. The problem, I think, for me, was that Bowie became famous eventually for being a comedian, but earlier on in his career, people couldn't really figure out what or who he was, who he was for, that type of thing. Um, He was jumping around from all these things, and even Bowie, in reflection, admitted that later on. I wanted to be well known, basically. Um, And that I wanted to be thought of as somebody who was very much a trendy person. Rather than a trend, I didn't want to be a trend. I wanted to be the instigator of new ideas. I wanted to turn people onto new things and new perspectives. I always wanted to be that sort of catalytic kind of thing. And so I had to govern everything around that. And I just pulled myself in and decided to, to use the easiest medium to start off with as rock and roll and then add bits and pieces to it over the years so that really by the end of it I was my own medium. I mean, that'll happen hopefully one day. That's sort of my... That's why I do it all, is to become a medium. <laughs> I wanted to be a trendy person, not a trend. I love that line. Yeah, and he wanted to be his own medium. And that absolutely chimes in 2021, where, of course, we are all that with Instagram and the social media yeah. networks. In a lot of ways, David Bowie was a, he was a trend centre. He was a trailblazer in more ways than one, Yeah, you heard there. Yeah, and there's so many points in his life where he, he sort of hints towards social media and the internet, even, things like that. It, it's quite bizarre. But, yeah, essentially, when he first moved to London and first tried to make it he just wanted to be well known he didn't know what for and he couldn't really focus in Um, and like I said those three albums previously the one before it The Man Who Sold The World hadn't really taken off so he'd taken time off to settle in and write new songs and he focused on composing on the piano he's a multi-instrumentalist great saxophonist as well as a guitarist and a pianist so he threw the guitar away and just decided to um, work on the piano here's how The Man Who Sold The World sounded you'll have heard it but just a reminder
that's the title track off his previous album. Yeah. Of course, made famous when Nirvana covered it perfectly on uh, the Unplugged MTV show. And so, again, you could hear how it was very guitar-led, very guitar-driven. Yeah. Here's Hunky Dory in 40 seconds and just listen to the difference in the instrumentation. Shades of the Beatles and Dylan. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we'll come An penultimate song, Dylan very on. Bob Dylan. Yeah, it, that was called uh, a song for Bob Dylan. And, oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. And I mentioned earlier that it didn't really start on good footing. Bowie's three previous records hadn't done very well. He wasn't the star that he wanted to be. He was having problems with contact negotiations with RCA, and his band had fallen out with him and all quit. Um, so he did a brief tour of the United States, um, and then he assembled a new backing band, which included uh, Rick Wake who would in the future play for Yes, um, a great band as well, a real prog-rocky band. And before that, though, he'd spent six months recording demos and writing songs in Radio Luxembourg's London studios. And by the time he went to London's Trident Studios in the summer of 1971, he pretty much completed demos uh, for ten of the songs, and the album eventually got recorded in two weeks, which is remarkably uh, time-efficient. So the songs that you'll know are Changes, yeah. which is the first song on the album, one of Bowie's most recognisable hits, setting the stall out, saying, forget what you knew of me, this is me now. And it's got a baiting quality. He's baiting pop stars of the time, challenging his own previous carnations of himself, saying it's time for change. Then track two. In fact, Changes became the title for the best of. Bowie was called Changes, so he obviously likes it as well. Um, oh, You Pretty Things, again, very self-reflective. Bowie looking at his old self, um, but pulling in some of the reaction to his earlier music with uh, Driving Your Mamas and Papas Insane is a great little lyric. Um, so this was the first song that Bowie had demoed, and he had it finished in January of 1971. So remember, the album gets released in December 1971, so it's like you know, 10 months, 11 months. He showed it to his dear friend Peter Noon, formerly of Herman and the Hermits. Peter Noon liked it so much that he recorded his own version and released it in April 1971 before Bowie had even been in the studio to record it. So here's what Peter Noon's version sounded like. Peter Noon was going on a solo career. He'd left Herman and the Hermits, uh, and this would be his first single. This is what it eventually sounded like when Bowie recorded it. Superior. 
So, obviously, Noon had to credit David Bowie as the writer of that song, and I've read a few times that it was that song that the record label heard and thought, ah, Bowie's onto something here. We'll give him a bit of cash, we'll send him into the studio, and we'll make him record whatever he's doing at the moment, and hopefully we'll have a thing. So you could argue that that Peter was Noon. the turning Hilton, point. Yeah. yeah, Peter Noon. He's got Peter Noon to thank for. Um, those two songs uh, hint at the schizophrenia of Bowie's work and the fact that at this point he was starting to look at himself and figure out who and what he wanted to be. Here's Bowie talking a bit more about that. I realised I was a sack of things. It's the uh, the more down-to-earth me sort of looking at the poser, David Bowie. It's, it's, uh, a lot of the songs, in fact, do deal with some kind of schizophrenia or, or um, alternating id problems. I thought I'd write my problems out, really. <laughs> write them out rather than work them yeah. out. Don't sit on a couch like that. You then move on to Life on Mars, which is just... It's, it's just David Bowie through and through. We're going to play that song later. We don't need to reflect on it too much because you've probably heard it so many times. But, of course, it's calling back to that earlier Space Oddity song that he'd done in his early uh, first or second album, I can't remember. Um, and, obviously, the world was still a bit obsessed with the space race and is there Life on Mars, so he's very good at... Like he said earlier, jumping on a trend and kind of using that in his art. Going to album tracks now. So Kooks, uh, it was dedicated to Duncan Jones, son of David Bowie. Of course, David Jones is his real name. Um, he's now a famous director. He directed Moon, Source Code and Warcraft. Brilliant director, actually. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, Bowie was in Radio Luxembourg Studios doing these demos. And obviously, John Peel, a legendary broadcaster in UK, had a show. And David Bowie just walked into a studio one day and said, um, well, he introduces the song that he'd just written very recently. So here's David Bowie doing that just now. Uh, I'd been listening to a new Young album, and uh, they phoned through and said that my wife had had a baby on Sunday morning, and I wrote this about the baby. It's called Kook. Kooks. Kooks. K-O-O-K-S. I'm not too sure of the words, because it is new, so have a go at it. Sounds very Neil Young, doesn't it? You hear those those chords there. Sounds yeah. very Neil Young. The whole the whole song. Quite a clumsy of, introduction from him. Yeah, it was. I, he did that though. When he talked about his work, he was very clumsy. He only kind of got very focused in his later life. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's a, he was a really good orator, quite polished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I've read that he got the words wrong on that song anyway. So he was obviously nervous of thinking about the lyrics and all that. But he, he'd written it a few days before, played it live on Radio Luxembourg, and it became uh, on the album. It became track six on Hunky Dory. Uh, and, of course, Kooks then inspired the band from the 2000s to name themselves the Kooks. There's three is more... Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. The link, that's the it? song. Yeah, yeah, that's wow. the song that they, okay. they named Did themselves after. Did not know after. that. Yeah. So, there's three more tributes on this album, uh, tribute songs uh, to American pop culture icons. There's one for David uh, Bob Dylan, there's one for Andy Warhol, and there's a song for Lou Reed as well. So, the song for Bob Dylan, which you, you picked up on earlier, Rob, um, it's a, a parody of Dylan's 1962 tribute to folk singer Woody Guthrie, which is called Song to Woody. H here's a little sound of it. A song for you about a strange young man called Dylan with a voice like sand and blue. There's a bit of a dichotomy going on here because he's saying he wants to be a trendsetter, but he's he's 
parroting these Thank other you. artists. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't get it. Yeah, I know, yeah, it's true. But I think, remember how inaccessible American music was in the UK? You know, you had to pre-order music, you had to wait for vinyl, there was limited copies in record shops, so you was maybe kind of jumping the guns rather than how accessible music is now. I think he, I think he probably got away with it. People didn't realise he was stealing bits and bobs from there and here and there. Right. And, um, wow. but, so th- there's loads of stuff about identity in this song. Throughout the song, Bowie addresses Dylan by his real name, Robert Zimmerman, and it's close to home for Bowie because uh, his real name is David Jones, of course, plus all the various aliases he adopted through his career. Um, they speculate that the Bob Dylan reference is a diversion tactic. It's actually an autobiographical song about himself, but he needed somebody to, to no. pin it on. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, the lyrics specifically uh, present Bob Dylan as no longer a hero in folk music because he's turned to rock and he should go back to his folky roots, which, of course, David Bowie originally started out as a folk singer. So there is there is stuff that chimes with that idea that it's, it's about David Bowie, but he's singing about Bob Dylan. Um, Andy Warhol starts, the song starts with a brilliant outtake. The song is called Andy Warhol, and it's obviously dedicated to the pop artist. Um, and it's a great little thing. If you think back to 1971 and the way this song starts, it sounds like a DVD extra before DVD extras were a thing. Have a quick listen. So to use an outtake from the studio is, is quite a bold move. It sort of hadn't been done at the time. And then it, this song does become much more formulaic and much more... Um, it's a bit of an acoustic song, actually. Interestingly, <laughs> I read this today and I find it brilliant. When Bowie met Warhol in, in September 1971, played him the recording before it had been released, Warhol hated it, <laughs> left the room, and Bowie recalled later on in an interview that the meeting was fascinating because Warhol had nothing to say, absolutely nothing. How artistic is that? Wow. He just wouldn't out. even acknowledge it. Brilliant. Wow. The final one was a tribute to Lou Reed. It was called Queen Bee. Uh, Lou Reed was obviously the singer of uh, Velvet Underground, and I think it's the only time in music history where the phrase a bippity boppity hat has sounded cool. Let's have a quick listen. <laughs> Yeah, that's where Ricky Gervais took his bippity boppity yes. on his um, Equality Street Equality song. Street. Because he's a massive Bowie fan. Huge Bowie fan. In fact, you can hear, the, as I've listened to the album, you can hear a lot of Gervais's music. When Gervais sings, he sounds like hunky-dory yeah. Bowie to me. Anyway. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's slightly outside of the rest of the album, a very piano-driven album. Uh, and then this was a very guitar-led um, song. And I think, personally, I think it wasn't meant to be on the album I think it was an editorial decision to keep it in rather than a creative decision because it meant that there was this triangle of tributes to American artists yeah. even though the song sounded completely yeah. different from everything else alright let's hear some David Bowie yes. Life on Mars from the Hunky Dory album 
It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on Bowie, Life on Mars. Time to, I suppose, wrap up our little feature on Hunky Dory, David Bowie's 1971 fourth studio album, Rog. Yes, indeed, and it's an album that over the years has crept up the ratings and the rankings. I mentioned that it uh, received very little promotion from RCA um, when it was first released, and it didn't actually chart. They were worried that he was going to just change again like the chameleon that he was. Uh, but over the years, it's been voted the 43rd greatest album of all time by Q Magazine in 1998. Is it really? Yeah, then in 2000, the same magazine put it up at number 16 <laughs> same thing All with Rolling time. Stone sorry 16 greatest British album uh, Rolling Stone ranked it 107th in their 500 greatest albums in 2003 then when they revisited that in 2020 it was up at 88 so it's just creeping up the charts still after all these that's years that's amazing yeah um, it didn't really get commercial breakthrough until um, Bowie's next album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars people then revisited Hunky Dory and f- just fell in love with it retrospect Hunky Dory's been critically acclaimed as Bowie's, one of Bowie's best works. It figures, it features most of his big hits, mm. um, and it's known as when Bowie starts to become Bowie, definitively finding his voice and his style. Here's Bowie reflecting on how important the album was in terms of his life and his work. Hunky Dory was uh, an upper. I just moved to Haddon Hall in uh, Beckenham, the borough of Beckenham, and uh, um, Angie was with me and uh, collected all my friends. Um, and I just got back. I think I got back from America, and everything seemed um, all systems go after the struggle of man to solve the world. Hunky Dory was the album that said, "Yes, all right, I understand what I've got to do now." Breakthrough in every sense of the word. Breakthrough for yeah. him, and Found a sort himself. of you know uh, clarity of thought, yes. I guess, that yeah. gave him and a personality that he would go on to develop. Still waiting for that clarity in of thought. Future albums, albums. yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to keep plugging away. Yeah. I've got our next studio album in the works. <laughs> Please, David Bowie. Then the Offscript Podcast.
Your evening with Pep and Ferran Soriano at the Inspiration Gallery at the UK Pavilion last night. Chris, went well? It went well. Thoroughly enjoyed myself. Uh, Ferran Soriano and Pep Guardiola, I said at the top of the show, two of the most impressive men you will come across in the world of sport, not just football, in the world of sport. I've been very fortunate to have interviewed a lot. You and I have been in the company of many Ferran Soriano is a footballing man. This is the biggest compliment I can pay this fella. He's a footballing man dressed in a suit. He would have looked equally at home last night in a tracksuit. He is a guy. What's I, his footballing background? Uh, former VP he player. He's not at all Ferran. He's, he's very much a businessman. I, I think he's had. He came from outside of football. In actual fact, he's not been really? brought up in and around the game. Former VP of Barcelona. I think he was interim CEO for a spell as well at FC Barcelona. And then he was given the keys to the castle. Wasn't he at Manchester City alongside Chichi Bergstein? And then, of course, they brought in the cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake. And Pep these Guardiola. three men, of course, were the men that built the legendary Barcelona team. Correct, they were, yes. It was with Juan Laporta, who is now back as Barcelona president. They were bold enough. They were. They were. They kind of saw the, the virtues of a young Pep Guardiola at Barcelona B, and they gave him his job he would repay them in kind a treble in 2009 with Barcelona arguably the greatest club side we've ever seen some would argue in 2011 when they beat Manchester United at Wembley I'd say that and then of course Pep's gone on he's managed in, in, in Germany with Bayern Munich and he's come to England and you could argue he's revolutionised the game 100 plus points they won the league a couple of years back 8 major trophies in his 5 and a bit years in charge playing a brand of football that is Let's be frank about it. It is awe-inspiring when they're at their very best. And they are just wonderful to listen to. And again, I go back to it. Ferran Soriano, and I mean this, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Pep, because he is, for my money, the best coach on the planet. In a lot of ways, Ferran Soriano impresses me more. He is football man first, businessman second. And those two guys on the stage last night, I was in awe, and everyone in the room were as well. They know football inside out they know what City's about they know what City football group's about and I can't help but thinking I'm a United fan I can let the cat out of the bag to the City folk listening now I kept thinking to myself wow Man United are a million miles away from this Because and this is a massive leap here I can't help but think if Man United were there last night mm. it would have been suits first football people second the PowerPoint would have been detailed, it would have looked the part, it would have been done by some awesome marketing agency. The guys speaking it though, I don't think they were they were selling what they were they were right. what they were proposing. Yeah, there's a so, disconnect or buying what they were selling, should the I say? The boardroom and the, the training room. There isn't that. Or the dressing it's, room, I should say. I mean Fer and Soriano is finishing sentences for Pep Guardiola. They are utterly in tune. I'm not on the pay payroll at Man City. Mm. All my listeners. They're singing are harmonies. They, they they do. Uh, and they're just very, very impressive. Uh, I've got to say that. One of the big takeaways from certainly from Pep as well, it was a real eye opener. No leadership style. His leadership style is an ever-evolving process. He is a chameleon. He is a leadership chameleon, and he explained why. Because individuals, if you're managing people, mm. circumstances change. Some days they're in a good mood. Some days they're in a bad mood. Some days they'll take the foot off the gas. You know, we're not always at it on this show, Rob. And as a boss, it's about knowing that and knowing to adapt your kind of rhetoric to suit the means. And he was at pains to point that out. He said, people call me a genius. You can call me what you want. When it comes to leadership and leading men onto a football field and getting extracting the best out of them, you've got to evolve. You've got to change every day. You've got to change your messaging. You don't want to become tired. You don't want to become old. You don't want, and I dare say we do this, to have the same old shtick day in and day out. For your money, Rob, from what you know and from what you see, is Pep Guardiola the best coach in world football? 
And I've said it before, there are question marks over his Champions League record post-Barcelona. There's no doubt about that. He hasn't won it in 10 years. And what would you say to those, though, that say, well, before Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp hadn't won it in 10 years? Uh... No, no, I get that. And there's no divine right to win the Champions League. But let's be honest, he's, he's managed Bayern Munich and he's had the perfect setup at Manchester City now. I, I, he ought to have won it with Manchester. I mean, they, they really ought to have won it last season. They should have beaten Chelsea, found a way to beat Chelsea in the final. And I, because they were the better team in the league. They were the best team in, in, the, in, league, in the league. They, the in a one-off league. game, I don't know. Um, they got exposed by, it wasn't Leon, was it? It was Leon. I can't remember. It was now. Leon. Yeah, it was Leon. They got the exposed 16. there. They, they got beaten by Tottenham in, in, a, in a weird game. Like, I just feel like sometimes... Uh, Tactically, games. tactically, he gets it wrong in those games. He overthinks I, it, perhaps. I, I think. think he is an, an absolute genius, and he's a maverick, and he's an incredible, and there's just a magnetism about him. Um, and he probably is. All told, he probably is the best coach in the world. But I just, I would say that he does need to rubber stamp that with a Champions League win with Manchester City. I do feel like, you know, when you look at what Jurgen Klopp did in building this modern Liverpool team in his image and recruiting, losing Coutinho, mm. when Coutinho was seen as the, the most important piece of the jigsaw puzzle, he lost him to Barcelona. They brought in Salah, eyebrows were raised. They spent, they paid 38 million to Roma or whatever it ended up being. And now look at him, he's turned Mo Salah into I'm going to the sound, best player on the I'm planet. I'm going to sound like a Man City fan here, but Pep Guardiola's lost Vincent Company. Pep Guardiola's lost David Silva. Pep Guardiola's lost Sergio Aguero. No real different. You could argue even better. Well, in fact, yes, there's no argument. All better than Philippe Coutinho. He's found Phil Foden. He's developed him into the player that he is. OK, he spent big. There's no denying. He's went out and spent, what, 50 million plus on two right-backs. He spent the same on full-backs, Cancelo, Benjamin Mendy. He spent huge sums of money. A lot of people will accuse Pep of being a checkbook manager. I think he's a lot more than that. I always think it's a bit of a cheap no doubt. snide at it that he is a checkbook manager. So for your money, then, who is the best manager? <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I think Pep shades it right now. I think he does. He, he does shade it for me. The best currently active manager, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it is still Pep. Okay, and if I was to ask you, who would you rather play for, Pep or Jürgen? Uh, probably Jürgen. You would rather you probably think Jürgen would extract the best out of you? <laughs> the idea of Jürgen extracting <laughs> anything out of me, Chris, from a footballing perspective, of course. Uh... Uh, there's something about Jürgen. There is something about him. I don't know what it is. I, I just feel like he is as a, as a motivational individual. And I know Pep's extraordinary as well. The two of them are extraordinary. I just Pep's a little bit more... Uh, intense. Intense. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely uh, you, right. You know what? And again, this is a massive kind of leap here. But I think you've almost got to be... You've got to be a little bit more intelligent to play under Pep, I feel. And that's... I don't know Jürgen all that well, I and mean, Jürgen is a very intelligent man. Multilingual, of course he is, but I just think you need a bit more smarts. You need a bit more ring smarts around you mm. to play for Pep. The Off Script Podcast. Chris in conversation with Pep Guardiola. Let's get into it now. Yeah, let's do just that. Pep was down at Expo 2020 Dubai. Of course, there is a link-up between Manchester City and the magnificent Expo 2020 Dubai. There was a lot of questions. I just want to add at this point, a lot of questions simply not allowed to ask Pep. It needed to be a little bit friendly, shall we say. There was a couple of questions that I would love to have put to Pep. Unfortunately, it wasn't... You weren't uh, bowling any offspin at him. No, it certainly was not. So I had to get a little creative. So I think there's still insight here. It's Pep Guardiola... 
at the end of the day. So let's delve into it because it's fair to say Pep is a very well-travelled individual. Of course, he's played, he's managed in countries all around the globe. He played in Italy with Brescia for Roma for a spell. He's managed in Germany, now England. Of course, he hails from Catalonia over in Spain. He speaks many languages. He is, as we've been detailing uh, over not just the last 15 minutes or so, for many years, a footballing visionary. The Expo 2020 motto is, of course, connecting minds, creating the future. With all of that in mind, I wanted to find out from Pep's perspective, given the fact he was there, how important he thought Expo 2020 was. Listen, culture is everything. And when we do a better society, of we know invest in that, invest in teachers, invest in culture, and invest in, and we are, come on, maybe my ancestors, I come from third or fourth generation, maybe it's an African person, people. So we, we don't know. So that's why we are more, more have much more, more in common than the people can believe. Uh, and don't be distracted for the politicians, for the, you know, to, to the argument just to leading or to be there. And trust more for the human rights and trust more with the, the people. What uh, you, you are uh, many, many reasons to be together. And here, in, in this huge part, there are many, many countries. Uh, and, and all of them, they want unity, and all of them, they want to be better for the other ones. All of them, they want to live good, uh, that citizens be free. And, and this is a good, uh, you know, it's culture. And culture, you have to invest every single day. He's a well-rounded individual, Pep. Mm-hmm. He does have a, a real grasp of what's going on and, and he uses football as the kind of way to kind of really shine that kind of light out there that football can be a microcosm in a lot of ways for the world. And it is amazing when you're sat across from Pep, it's as if every time he's talking... He gesticulates a lot. He wants to just grab you. At times you're kind of backing away going, OK, Pep, don't lunge for me here. He's just a very passionate individual. Yeah. Now, big part of Manchester City, obviously a success on the football field, but when you d- dig a little deeper, you understand that the owners down in Abu Dhabi, they've invested huge sums, regenerating part of the city. They've given back massively to the local community over there in Manchester. Uh, city Football Group doing likewise. 11 clubs in 11 different countries across the globe, from India to Australia to to Uruguay, and I wanted to know from Pep's perspective how essential he felt that football and sport in general was in giving back. Just in Manchester, the Manchester community, like I said, making incredible things, but the City Football Group around the world, I know because I'm part of this club, I know how many things uh, they do. And what I said before, the culture, how important sport is culture, and and what I learned as a, as a I would say my education came from, from a school, of course, but came from absolutely playing football. And this is a microcosmos, like is a, a football team, like is a, your mates, your your staff, your manager, and listen, accept the defeat, accept the victories, how you handle the good moments, the bad moments, how you have to accept that the manager today you don't play, you have to accept that the other one. These kind of things create, like, I think the sports, the people, are and 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 always always if I was born again I will uh, sport please sport sports because you you learn everything there is everything in life and 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 I think Manchester City I would say a city full group is doing an incredible job um, giving back look a sport itself give it to you so at the end 
it's what you have to do. So in a lot of ways, that's Pep, the politician, or not, that's harsh. That's Pep, the kind of human being in society, if you mm. will. Let's get to Pep, the manager now, because I think I speak for you all when I say when you watch a Manchester City match and Pep Guardiola on the touchline, you can never accuse that man of lacking passion. No. You know, that he, he just embodies. He is a ball of passion on the touchline. And it's interesting, Xavi's gone on record. I know Kevin De Bruyne recently on international break has talked about what Pep does to the mind. They didn't really understand. They didn't see football until they worked with Pep. Yeah. He is a revolutionary in that regard. And I just wondered, you know, opening his mind to many possibilities, you know, he's, he's, he's very much like that. And I said to him, Pep, come on, would you describe yourself as a perfectionist? We have to, to yeah, to, to try to, to achieve that goal or try it, but knowing that it's impossible because the lack is involved and uh, you, you are dealing feelings. And the feelings sometimes are high, sometimes are low, so to handle that is not, is, not, um, is not easy. But of course, so one of the mottos to, to continue still being there is the fact, okay, we can do better. If I would feel right now, so we cannot do it better, I'm not saying win, yeah? do it better, I will not be sitting here. You have to come to pick me up in a golf course because I will be there playing golf. So you have to go there. So and still I had the feeling we can do better and that is still and do it. Knowing better, better, perfection, forget about it because we are in perfections. So that's why. Poetic as yeah. well. Bit Donny Brasca there. Forget about it. For, forget <laughs> about it. But yeah, forget, yeah, forget there is, about it. There is a bit of that and he's saying that, no, we, we're not perfect because we are mm. imperfect we're perfect imperfections and that, that's in how he processes I would imagine and reconciles himself to the defeats and, and that there's more on that in fact we're going to get to that because what you've said there is absolutely spot on he has achieved so much I mean his resume it speaks for itself a treble with Barcelona 2009 two doubles the German league Bundesliga as well as the German Cup with Bayern Munich a treble of domestic titles with City a record points haul of 100 points I had to ask him the question what's the achievement that gives him the most satisfaction. At the end, the memory remains as the relations you have in your life with the players or when you're a football player with your mates or your managers. Remind that. I'm not going to sleep, you know that, and sitting there before I switch off the light and I count the titles I won or the money I have at the bank. Forget about it. So the memories, the experience, the feelings that you had, you have in this process is what, what you have. The sport, the, the, the sport gives you a lot of that, a lot. You have to be smart to, to select how it remains here, and, and with that, all will be, you will be there. And, and of course, as a competitors, as a, a human beings that want to be better, the finest perfection, which is the next goal to win. I want to win the Premier League again. Yeah, of course. Uh, try to win the Champions League for the first time. Yes, of course. But that will not be. The, the reason I said so I was so fortunate in, in, in I think all of us we are here in this organization we are so fortunate to that we have done in our career so I'm going to knock the door and say I want more and more and more come on come on so if it comes great so welcome depends on us and our, and our effort and our, don't come it's life so in life you lose more than win in life you have sometimes more disappointed than, than the big things or the success for sure so after we have done in this period in, in many years, we were playing in big clubs, in big organizations, incredible people surrounding you. What else? 
I do believe him there, by the way, Rob. Mm. I, I do believe it doesn't matter for titles for him. It's the connections and it is the relationships that he's building in his football yep. career. And he does take the losses. It's not all win at all costs. Yes, of course, he wants to win, but he can deal in defeat as well. He's been a coach now for 14 years. He's a pioneer. He's a maverick. He's an innovator. Call him what you will. What, though, makes Pep Guardiola special? Normally a genius after when I win a game and after I fail when I lose a game. So I'm not a genius, honestly. I'm a guy who works, who's the works incredible in, in the world. I'm there. Uh, in that, I'm good. I spend a lot of time here and there. there. I'm, I try to be the first to arrive and the last to leave. And it's no secrets. And, and normally happen in a... Um, um, because I, I, did, I don't understand the, 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 the satisfaction, personal satisfaction. I, I'm not talking about happiness. Satisfaction is completely different. You know, to do a job about, I don't, want, I don't want to get something without effort. I don't want it. It doesn't work. When something here, I, mean, I give you this, that, no value. It's not satisfaction. Satisfaction is when it's, it, it, you know, yeah, you don't win the Champions League. Yeah, okay, yeah. I put more effort to try, to try. It, it works good. No works my friend, I won three in my career as a football player. I can't remember more. We were closer in the other times. So in that, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm good. Just a final bit from him. I actually spoke to him after the interview and he did say that he has changed and that perhaps he, he, he's just different. He perhaps doesn't have the same love for the game as he did 14 years ago. And I did say to him, that's just natural. You're getting old, Pep. And he had a chuckle. And into the night he went off on a plane, 3am back to Manchester. And he'll be back in the dugout. Man City, of course, going for yes another title at the end of the season. The Offscript Podcast. The DP World Tour Championship. The meeting ground for the greatest players on earth. Those top players are in attendance at Jumeirah Golf Estate. We logged into a Zoom press conference. We're going to hear from Roy McIlroy and defending champion Matt Fitzpatrick. We're going to hear tomorrow from the two American contenders right at the top of the race to Dubai, order of merit. Billy Horschel, number two, and the leader going into this week, the Open champion, Colin Morikawa, a man who can actually go to world number one if he wins yeah. the tournament. John Rahm has elected not to be here um, so yeah let's, let's catch up with Rory McIlroy an interesting year for Rory he spoke about it being a year of exploration mm-hmm. of finding out a little bit more about himself of kind of getting clarity I think on what he wanted to do with his game and where he was at and, and he's had his trials and tribulations this year he, he's not played too well in the major championships he has won twice he was awful in the Ryder Cup he was awful in the Ryder Cup uh, until the singles day if you're listening Rory give you your due you were better in the singles day but just not the Rory McIlroy mm that we have come to know and, and respect so much. And he was being interviewed initially by the BBC's Ian Carter. He was thrown a bit of a curveball when he was asked about carbon footprints and environmental sustainability. Hey, listen, it's COP26 a couple of weeks it ago. Is. COP28 coming to this part of the now, world. Now, we know Rory is, is a pretty smooth customer when it comes to pressers, but is this response a little bit too measured, perhaps? You guys can be the judge. Yeah, so it's funny you say that. So two years ago, after I won in China... Um, I flew back home privately and it was just me on the plane. And I just got this massive sense of guilt come over me just because of, you know, this can't be good and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So we ended up reaching out to the Geo Foundation to do a lot of great sustainability things in in golf. Um, And it was the only sort of organization that we knew of that I guess could help us go in the right direction. So what I was trying to do is try to make all my travel like I'm not, I wouldn't self-profess to be an eco-warrior, but I'm certainly someone that doesn't want to damage the environment anyway. So how can I make my travel around the world 
neutral? How can I just neutralize what I do? And they came up with um, a few different ways that, that I can do that. So on top of what I pay to, to fly private, I pay a, quite a bit more on top of that to make sure that I'm, I'm carbon neutral by the end of the year. So it's something that I, I have certainly have a conscience about. And I, I take, take it seriously, especially when you see some of these weather events that are happening. And, you know, I live in a part of the world where hurricanes are very prevalent and they're just becoming more and more prevalent as the years go on. So, um, you know, I think we can all sort of play our part in, in some way or another. Yeah, Rory lives down in Florida, where it is, of course, hurricane season. Mm -hmm. Around about this time of the year, isn't it? A little bit earlier, earlier on in the year. But um, he is here. He is competing. He had, after the Ryder Cup, left it open to whether he would play these events. And he he was on the verge, I think, of deciding to pack it in for the year. But he has chosen to play. And he's going to go over to the Bahamas and play in Tiger's event as well. As a journal of some repute, Robert, has uh, Rory been given a little bit of a tip-off that Mr. Ian Carter was asking that question? It certainly appeared like that. Who knows? It could have just been happenstance. But he certainly seemed to... Articulate is Rory. He certainly seemed to anticipate the question very well. Um, Now, of course, he was asked also about John Rahm's absence and Unsurprisingly, he leapt to John's defense. I fully understand. I mean, he's just won his first major this year. He's had his first child. I fully understand. I don't think anyone can criticize him for not being here. He's he's given his all all year. Um, he's had his trials and tribulations as well. Um, he was an absolute star at the Ryder Cup for us. Yeah, he he couldn't have given more, and he's he's given a lot to the European Tour already. He goes to Spain, plays those plays those two events there, in his in his home country. I don't think anyone can criticise him for not being here this week. I think that's a stock answer from Rory. It is very well. Been, well, he'd have been, been a, a hypocrite, of course he would, because yeah. he's done likewise. In he the has past. done likewise. It's just that Ram's third, and he could, you know, a lot's at stake in, in a way. You know, Morikawa's could essentially leapfrog him, become world number one. I mean. Again, this is the problem with these guys being independent contractors, which is what we're always told they are. Yeah. Uh, he just decided that he didn't fancy it this uh, week for whatever reason. And and whilst you respect that, and Rory certainly does, as a fan, they, I think it is fair to criticise John in a little bit of way because it is the, the showpiece. It's the final event of the year. And, and listen, I, I don't know, I'm not in the head of John Ram. Mm. It's a week, John. You've got a week to come out here. To, to entertain the masses, you are a European Tour patron. Come here, perform, and you know what? Next Monday, John, take it off. Well, You're off until Abu Dhabi HSBC in when January. When you talk about building a narrative, you look at team sports, and in a way, how is it different from Lewis Hamilton suddenly turning around and saying, you know what? I don't fancy the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. It's been a long, tough year. Go ahead and let Max of win it. Of course it is. That's exactly what it is, Rob. I know, but how absurd would that be? It would never happen. It would never happen because the F1 season is X amount of length. It starts in March, it finishes in December, and then you pack it away. Well, here's the question. This is the problem with golf. Golf's global. There's a wraparound schedule, and you get to pick and choose as a top player where you play. So now we're missing out as fans. We're not going to see whether John Rahm can win the third DP World Tour Championship of his career. We're not going to see whether he can back up his race to Dubai win from uh, last year, I think it was, or was it two years ago? Two years ago. years ago Westwood won it last year uh, and win a second one in three years because he's decided to he's opted out and it's just fair enough fair play for him it's his it's own decision rule. it's the way that's he designed can, he can but when you say you know there's guys and journalists at that press conference going oh let's beware the Saudi money uh, you know we don't want that ruining the game that they have to acknowledge that the game there is something fundamentally wrong with that broken because, because of this because, because there's the, just yeah. no there's no structure 
there's, there's a FedEx Cup, then there's the European Tour finale, and it's who's going to play? We never know. Justin Rose hasn't come. Mm-hmm. Um, Victor Hovland hasn't come. So, you know, it's great having Rory here. It's fantastic. We're going to love it. It's an amazing event. It doesn't, in many ways, it's so good, it doesn't even need them because we're still going to have a great time. We're going to see a great golf tournament. Even last year when it was behind closed doors, there was a brilliant story. We with, might not need them, but golf does. I think so. That's the narrative. I do think so. That there that. is, uh, you know, that, that would be the only criticism you could level. You're not having a go at him per se. You're just, you're remarking really that it's a shame. Mm. Well, it's more than that. I, yeah, I'm a bit peeved, to be perfectly honest, for the reasons that I think you've just outlined very succinctly, Rob. As for the big talking point, another big talking point is, of course, that DP World, a company based right here in Dubai, are, of course, taking on title sponsorship of the European Tour. And you know what? If you're the bosses at the DP World, you might want to turn your radios down at this point because Rory McIlroy, a fan of the deal, of course, he ain't, though, going to be rushing to change his schedule in 2022. I don't know. I... I... I live in America now. That's, you know, like that's where I'm going to play the the majority of my golf. Um, I don't think it'll change really. It'll change schedule for me. Um, I just think it's a great thing for this tour that, um, you know, the members that play on this tour full time have a, have a place to play um, long into the future. Um, But for me personally, you know, I think I'm just going to play the same schedule that I've, that I've basically played for the last, sort of five years um you know it may encourage me to 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 not an event here or there but you know for the most part i'll probably just um keep doing what i've done the last few years can never fault him for his honesty uh, his honesty he's always candid in press conferences that's why i think he does create a lot of headlines but also he's appreciated for that massively rob i often say to you there's never a canned answer with rory if you do your research and you ask the questions you will always get a frank and honest answer and that is that that is proper a lot of props speaking of frank and honest answers (laughs) let's move on brilliantly to this matt fitzpatrick (laughs) a two-time winner of the tournament defending champion here this week he was asked how much golf he watches in his spare time and his response is fair to say was brutal i, I don't really watch much golf uh, away from it I, I just i only i only really watch football when not in terms of the, in other sports really I, it's golf just bores me to death to be honest on tv and i might watch the final few holes if it's close coming down the stretch or somewhere but it, yeah it doesn't really not for me. Oof. Not for me, he says. Not for me, he says. The man who's about to embark again on a defence of a title. I mean, he's not selling it, is he? I mean, I don't is... care. He can say whatever he wants. I love nothing more than sitting on the sofa and watching four hours of golf. Thank yeah, you that, very that's much. That's you, but uh, from, a, from a main tour player saying that the yeah. TV hey, coverage bores hey, me. Hey, Brooks Kepka's no fan of the game. I mean, you do yeah, get a course. lot. You get a lot. I'm sure there are footballers out there that don't like watching football. Oh, and I know many. You're exactly like that, but it's just when you hear it like that and he's saying that the TV coverage of it bores me. I'm a big fan of Doogie Donnelly and I want Doogie and Matt Fitzpatrick in a boxing ring duking out <laughs> after that comment. Brilliant. Because that, uh, it's, oh, listen, okay. it's honest and we often say that sportsmen and women sometimes are like machines yeah, in other programs. Play. They were, they were in candid mood today, the yeah, players. It was brilliant. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 